message this morning. And Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for your presence. We thank you, Father, for the word, your word that you have given to us, that you've inspired holy men to write and that you've preserved over the many centuries. We thank you, Father, that we can trust because of the evidence you've given. We can trust that what we have in our laps, what we have in our hands, is your word, is true, and that we can and must depend on it. I pray, Lord, that what we will speak this morning and this message will be pleasing to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Back, uh, oh, about 6,000 years ago, an innocent woman was met by a snake. She hadn't been looking for him, but he was certainly looking for her. And when he found her, he tricked her into disobeying God by eating the fruit of just one particular tree. Now, she'd only heard of God's command to not eat of that tree from her husband. She hadn't heard it directly from God, as her husband had. But if he was right there with her, if Adam was there with Eve, as the Bible seems to indicate, Adam heard the entire conversation between his wife and the snake, but said nothing. And when she'd taken a bite of the fruit, she shared it with her husband. And though he clearly knew it was forbidden by God, He ate it anyway. He ate it anyway. When God knew what they had done, he strongly rebuked the three of them with curses individually for each of them and one curse that involved specifically the woman and the snake. It was the first prophecy of the Bible given by God himself and here's what he said to them. Speaking directly to the snake, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So while the woman and the snake had supposedly been having a relatively friendly conversation earlier, God now promised to put enmity between them, a deep-seated mutual hatred and animosity for each other. And not only between the two of them, but also between their offspring, their seed. Wait a minute, I gotta turn Tommy off. 
There would be violence between them and perpetual hatred between their offspring. They and their seed would do physical harm to each other. The word translated bruise in the New King James can be translated in a number of ways. One would be to do something like to give your opponent a black eye, a bruise. But the other meaning would be to crush your opponent, to totally defeat him, even to kill him. I believe that God used both meanings here. So I'll, I'll rephrase that part of the verse accordingly. He, the seed of the woman, shall crush your head, snake, but you and your offspring will only bruise his heel. In other words, God is telling the snake, who we know is Satan, that while he'll cause the seed of the woman to suffer some pain, but then he will crush, defeat, and destroy the snake. This verse has long been called the first gospel of the Bible and is prophetic of the struggle and its outcome between Satan's seed, that would be Satan himself, his demons, and unbelievers who are called the devil's children and her seed, Christ, a descendant of Eve, and those who by faith are in him, which includes us if we know Christ. And this whole thing began in the garden. But in the midst of the curse passage, there's also a message of hope that shines through. The woman's offspring, called he, is Jesus Christ, as we'll learn, who will one day defeat the serpent. Satan could only bruise Christ's heel, cause him to suffer, while Christ will crush Satan's head, destroy him with a fatal blow. And whenever Whenever I read that verse, and you'll excuse me if, if I just take a little personal pleasure here, I remember there's a scene in the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And if you've seen that movie, came out about, I think about 20 years ago, there's one scene where Jesus is in the garden praying and out slithers a snake and he stomps on it with his sandal. I just love the way Mel Gibson put that in the movie. I just love that scene. It's very short, but it's so true and so powerful. Now going on, you may recall one of the many confrontations 
that Jesus had with the Jewish leaders of his day. Here's an important piece of one of those conversations. It came out of a debate regarding their lineage from Abraham. Then Jesus said to them, You are of your father the devil. Notice that. He says that the father of the Jewish leaders of that day is the devil. He says, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. So Jesus specifically identifies his Jewish opponents as children of Satan, children of the devil, the seed, offspring of the snake, while also specifically identifying Satan as the father of unbelievers, of wicked humans, as well as demons. I'm going to pause there for one moment. We often say, and it's very true, when somebody comes to Christ for salvation, they are taken from the kingdom of Satan and brought into the kingdom of God. So it's a very real thing, knowing that you and I once were the seed of Satan. And it's only through the work of the Holy Spirit and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that God took us out of his kingdom, Satan's kingdom, and planted us into his own kingdom. So while we were of the seed of Satan, we have become and now will forever be of the seed of the woman who is Christ. But there's one thing that's very unusual here. God refers to her seed, the seed of the woman. At that time, it was generally known that in human reproduction, it was only the man who had seed, which was planted in the rich environment of the woman's womb. Women didn't have seed, and yet God used that phrase. Why is that important? Well, because along with the seed of men came the fallen sin nature inherited from Adam. And yet, God clearly said, her seed. Now, we know that every human that is born has that fallen sin nature in him or her. Everyone that is but Jesus. While he had a human mother, he didn't have 
a human father. So who was Jesus' father? Let's read the conversation that Mary had with the angel Gabriel. It's in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 30. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? She's never had sex. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So who is Jesus' Father? God is. Not a human man. Not a man who would pass on the sin nature to his child. But our infinite, perfect God. That's why it is so absolutely important for Mary to be a virgin. As Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7, he said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. For unto us, a couple of chapters later, he says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You take those prophecies from Isaiah and you really spend time with them and you get a pretty good picture of what life will be like both in the millennium and in heaven. Wonderful stuff. So if Jesus wasn't sinless, he wouldn't be qualified to be the perfect sacrifice for the redemption of all mankind. But he was sinless, as we read in Hebrews. He's experienced every temptation that we have, 
yet without sin. But he was sinless because his mother was a virgin and his father is God. Without the virgin birth, Christianity would be foolishness. There would be no propitiation, no effective sacrifice for our sins, and we would carry them with us to the grave. We'd be judged, then we would spend eternity in the lake of fire. But Satan has ways to slip his sneaky little poisonous barbs into humanity. And in recent years, and I found out really many years ago as well, he's raised up more of his seed. People who go around denying Mary's virginity and Isaiah's prophecy by saying that the words used could just as easily be translated young woman as virgin. I'll take you back quickly to what Mary said when the angel told her she'd conceive. She said, how can this be since I do not know a man? So she declared her own virginity. But these guys are going around saying that ah, Mary wasn't a virgin. It's not that important. You know, the word could be just a young woman. At first, it seems to be just another theological debate that's unimportant to most people. But no. It is a direct attack by Satan and his seed to destroy in one fell swoop the very foundations of our faith. If you don't believe in Jesus' virgin birth and sinless life, your eternity is at serious risk. There can be no substitutionary death for your sins. But now let's look at a few other attacks that Satan has made over the millennia since God pronounced his curse, about 6,000 years, I believe. Attacks that were aimed at eliminating the Jewish people from the face of this earth, because the seed of the woman was to come from the Jews. Now, there are quite a few, but we'll just briefly look at several. The first was the flood. Satan had so polluted mankind with evil, treachery, unrighteousness. He had so polluted mankind that God felt compelled to destroy every living thing on the planet, except Noah and his family. So God had a way to ensure that despite the death of all but eight people, the seed of the woman would continue. Then there's Pharaoh. I'm sure you remember the story. 
even after all that Joseph had done to save Egypt and really to ensure that every pharaoh of the future would have much greater power, even despite that, a pharaoh arose, we read in the beginning of Exodus, a pharaoh arose who knew nothing of Joseph, knew nothing of what he did to save his country. But as the Jewish people grew from a family of just about 70 people to more than 2 million over their 400 years in Egypt, in slavery, the Pharaoh became worried, even scared, as he saw the threat of that family that had become a strong nation. So he decided to limit their growth. In Exodus chapter 1, we read, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was, was Shiphrah, and the name of the other Puah. And I think it's interesting that God recorded their names. They were so special. And Pharaoh said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But when that didn't work, because the Hebrew midwives found excuses for not killing the baby Jewish boys, Pharaoh went a step further. We read in verse 22 of chapter 1 in Exodus. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who was born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Of course, that was stupid. That was so foolish, because in case he didn't realize it, you need both males and females for any nation to survive. But the point is that by enticing Pharaoh to do this, Satan was again trying to eliminate all Jewish boys. So there could be no seed of the woman. But again, we know that the midwives got around that, that Moses was born and that God used him to liberate all the Jews, about two and a half million. So the seed continued. And then there's the story of Esther. Esther and Haman the wicked assistant to the king of Persia and one of the seed of Satan. He manipulated the king to authorize the complete annihilation of the Jews. Everybody, 
men, women, children, everybody. He plotted against the Jews to annihilate them. But when Mordecai, Esther's cousin, learned of the plot, he pressed Queen Esther to expose the plot and turn it against Haman, which she did. And that's where we get the famous phrase, perhaps you were created for such a time as this, because what she did was dangerous. Then we read in chapter 9, verse 24 and 25, Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and there's a whole story behind that, the enemy of all the Jews had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast poor, that is, the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot, which Haman had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his sons, Haman and his sons, should be hanged on the gallows. And of course, though God's name is not mentioned at all in the book of Esther, his hand was clearly involved by causing the king to read the records that revealed an earlier action of Mordecai, the Jew, that had saved the king's life. And then, as we read a bit earlier, there's Herod the Great. We know from the story of the Magi arriving in Jerusalem a year or two after Jesus' birth, that they greatly disturbed Herod by asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We read the story earlier. But Herod himself, you see, was called king of the Jews. He was under Rome. So he worried that somehow he would be supplanted by the child mentioned by the wise men that after lying to them to come back and tell him where the child was, the Magi found the baby Jesus, worshipped him, but were warned in a dream to not return to Herod. And then when he realized it, as we read, Herod ordered that every male child from two years and under should be slaughtered intending to include the child called the king of the Jews in the killings. We can easily see the hand of Satan here. He no longer looked to destroy a people, but was now focused in on one person, one child. Satan now knew who the seed of the woman was. And then, as we briefly mentioned, there's the Jewish elders, 
the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, even after Jesus was born, Satan raised up his own seed to destroy the seed of the woman, Jesus the Christ. He'd influenced several generations of scribes, Pharisees, rabbis, and Sadducees to turn from following Yahweh, the one true God, to following the devil, even if they didn't realize it. Their evil, scheming, hypocritical, wicked lives were used by Satan to harass and then to murder Jesus, the seed of the woman. I'm sure Satan rejoiced and let out a sigh of relief when Jesus died on the cross, not knowing what would come in just a few days. But when it did come, when Jesus was resurrected and thereby defeated the devil, God's prophecy in Genesis 3:15 was partially fulfilled. Satan had bruised the heel of Jesus, and Jesus had defeated, but not yet destroyed, the devil. That is yet to come. And then in the years since, though Satan can no longer hope to destroy the seed of the woman, it seems that Satan's wrath at being defeated is causing him to do all that he can to destroy the Jews and to take the joy of victory away from Christ the seed of the woman. The anti-Semitism of the Middle Ages, the pogroms of Russia and other nations to destroy the Jews, the Holocaust of Hitler, the War of Independence in 1948, when every one of the surrounding nations tried to destroy Israel at once. And it was only by miracles that they weren't successful. To the many wars with their neighboring nations over the past decades, the constant intifadas of the jihadist Muslims, that horrendous missile attack of just this past October, coupled with the land invasion of southern Israel, with such evil slaughter of innocence and the present rise of anti-Semitism around the world. People who have eyes to see clearly see Satan behind all of this. His wrath, his temper tantrum, at being defeated by Christ at the cross will continue right up to and into the tribulation. And after the millennium at the judgment, he and his followers, his seed, will ultimately be destroyed. 
in the lake of fire. Indeed, the Bible tells us that the lake of fire was created for Satan and his angels and his seed. Okay, today is Christmas Eve. You might ask, but Pastor Larry, what does all this have to do with Christmas? I'll tell you. What do we celebrate at Christmas? The human birth of Christ. Of course, he'd always existed eternally as God. But we celebrate his human birth at Christmas. But why do we celebrate that? Because he was born to live a perfect life and take our sins onto himself. At the cross, so that we can be free of sin and have eternal life with him in heaven. You might read past this a lot, but I, I encourage you to really look at the depth of this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul, speaking of the Father, said, He made him who knew no sin. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I call that the great swap. It is so outrageous. But that's what God did in Christ. He took sinless Jesus Christ and had him punished, slaughtered, tortured with whippings and beatings and finally the cross, the death of the cross. He did that so that we wouldn't have to. And he was only qualified because according to the Old Testament, the only lambs that could be sacrificed on Yom Kippur and at Passover had to be perfect, spotless lambs. And that's what Jesus was for us. So we can be free and have eternal life with him in heaven. You know, we can't look at the babe in the manger without also seeing, as the earlier image showed you, without also seeing the shadow of the cross over that manger and the empty tomb and our Lord bodily ascending to heaven. We celebrate all of these at Christmas because on this day, Jesus' magnificent human life and ministry began. But we should also celebrate this day because of the thousands of years of intrigue, battle, deception, 
hatred, and more that were used by Satan to prevent this day from happening. But with the victory of God at every attempt, and also with the sacrifice of many people who suffered and died because of Satan's schemes, we should be thankful for those people. But don't get me wrong. Christmas is a great day of celebration, a day of happiness and joy and victory, the great day of the first incarnation of God, the Son, entering into humanity, entering into mankind, the beginning of the perfect life that is to be our example and that will enable our Lord to be our Savior. And I thought it good and proper to share the backstory of Christmas. Because, at least for me, it makes my celebration deeper, my appreciation of God's work stronger, and my anticipation of Jesus' second coming more passionate. I love the songs and the lights of Christmas. I love them that so beautifully shine, making otherwise dark neighborhoods bright with beauty and color and joy, celebrating the life of our King. Let me see if I can get this. 